Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Face Tattoos, because nothing says you're friendly like letting strangers draw on your map. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Love those. Today's show is brought to you by Cardiff Electric. Think bigger, think giant, think Cardiff Electric. Welcome to the Pestle. This is a show. I am Wes. And I am Todd. I have a tendency to fast forward so often. Yep. Uh, this is the Pestle where we like to analyze and break down shows much like a mortar and pestle. And then the result being our show and analysis and see what all is uh, goes into a film. What's it made of and why is it made that way to support you know the story, the film, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. And Wes, you're more of the technical type, correct? Uh, uh, you like, I do. And this will probably be a really good example of it. Oh, uh, good. Of good. Me kind of navel gazing a little yeah. bit. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I mean, I, I, and, and I myself, you know, uh, uh, do production work and editing and everything. Uh, but I, I'm able to turn, turn that side of my, my life off when I go into a, into a movie and, and kind of, um, just watch it from the point of view of a, of a, of a lover, you know, a film. Yeah. A little bit more, I, th- I think. Yeah. If only, I mean, I really do love it when films pull me into the point where that kind of goes away for the most part. Yeah. Uh, that's a really special feeling. I was going to ask. So like, is that, does that ever, uh, I know we're getting straight into questions, but does that ever like, do you ever think, man, I wish I could just turn it off? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. All right. Um, because you know, the, the old film, movie lover and me before I got into filmmaking and uh, the creating behind the camera and front of the camera stuff uh, was always able to just kind of sit back and let the movie hit me. But it's funny in the process, I've begun to really refine the movies that I like mm-hmm. because now that I'm aware of tropes or, you know, uh, bad quality, uh, it's really turned me off to so many other films that Growing up, I, I really enjoyed, right? I really enjoyed something like Face Off. I was going to say, give me an example. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now it's really hard to enjoy a film like Face Off. <laughs> uh, I, I like that you can admit it, though, Yeah, that you enjoyed Face Off. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Broken Arrow, Face Off, all those early it's, John it's, Woo movies. Yeah, it's like a, uh, what do you want to call it? A, um, a guilty pleasure. Absolutely. And yeah. I still get those. The first My Chemical Romance would album would be mine. <laughs> yes, you heard right. Awesome. I actually love that record. I used to like blare it as loud as I could <laughs> driving down Sunset Boulevard. That is amazing. Yeah. So today we're going to be covering Netflix's Mudbound. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, you should be aware that there are spoilers in this episode. Oh yeah. We're going to get There's really deep in every into episode. it. Yeah, yeah. Every episode that we do is going to have a lot of spoilers, but we'll only make sure that we spoil Mudbound. So don't worry about other films being spoiled in the process. We'll, right. We'll be really good about staying on on topic, um, and we have a guest uh, appearance on the on the podcast today, Carl Effenson, who's uh, one of the co producer of the film. We're going to have him on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to this guy. I am so excited. Pick his brain and just see. We have a lot of questions for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I was trying to pick just three, you know, like targeted questions that I would want someone to ask me you know, mm. uh, having the experience that he has um, and, or that I would want to hear someone ask, you know, a producer of a major film like this. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I got. So awesome. stick around for the end of, of this episode. Can't wait to hear that. We'll yep. also be uh, 
talking about intersectionality, uh, the camera work, lighting, the camera itself, uh, and so much more. So yeah, uh, really excited about this. Are we going to define intersectionality? Because I don't know what that means. We will. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Can you educate me? I appreciate it. Uh, all right. So we'll give you a quick synopsis of the film. Uh, no spoilers. But two men return home from World War II to work on a farm in rural Mississippi where they struggle to deal with racism and adjusting to life after war. It's directed by D Reese screenplay by Virgil Williams and D Reese. Uh, it's based on the novel by Hillary Jordan starring Carrie Mulligan as Laura Garrett Hedlund as Jamie Jason Clark as Henry Jonathan Banks as Pappy Rob Morgan as Hap Mary J Blige as Florence uh, and Jason Mitchell as Roncel. Tanker boys ever piss in your helmets? Plenty times. We had a relief tube up in the cockpit. Sometimes it was easier just to go on our flak helmets. But at 20,000 feet, that piss freezes solid in less than a minute. Is that cold up there? Shit. Talking 20, 30 below. One time we were on this long haul, I pissed in my helmet, I forgot all about it. We were just over the target. I put the helmet back on. We were doing this bombing run, dodging enemy flag, and all of a sudden I started feeling something running down my face. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was hit. <laughs> I smelled like a damn latrine. Yeah, you must have caught hell back at that officer's club, too. Well, my friends never let me hear the end of it. Ones that made it back, anyway. I lost some friends. We're used to them. Beautiful. Such a great scene. Yeah. I think it really, I mean, I guess we'll just jump right in because yeah. I, I think that's the moment where you really get the sense of the intersectionality of the film. Yeah. Um, it starts with this very simple and beautiful uh, or hilarious story but it's it's a personal story that only he could get. And so let's define intersectionality real quick. It's uh it's the idea really that we're 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 individuals. We're we're made up of many different categories. And you can't define any one person in any single category as just that category. Right. So like the idea that you know your race, you're made up of your the class that you're in, your education, your sexuality, your age, your language, your culture, and just a thousand other ways that make up every single individual person to the point that you might have two people who grew up you know in the slums of India, right, but one person maybe identifies more with uh, a person who grew up in Manhattan you know, with the silver spoon because they both share a, a, a shared love of space and space oh, exploration. Yeah. And so it's, it's the idea that you can connect with people on a more personal level in a number of ways, but it's also often used more. I think it's probably more often used as a way to uh, subjugate people. And it's, it's a, another classification, you know, system that can go awry. But whenever you start thinking about intersectionality, it's, it's usually the bigger idea of, how much of a person really is specific instead of this broad generic thing. Gotcha. Uh, and it's really beautiful. And this film I feel like is all about that. Yeah. It's all about that. You have these two people, right. Who come from completely opposite walks of life, even though they grew up 
maybe I don't know where each one grew up. Obviously, Ron Zell grew up in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure where uh, his buddy Jamie grew up. If he's from Mississippi or from like somewhere else, I couldn't really. I can't remember. I'm sure they discussed it at the beginning of the film. But yeah, that's that scene is the moment when they really start to connect mm-hmm. whenever at that last moment, right? He says, you know, the ones that made it home anyway. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I lost them too. And now they're both, they're finding their, their overlap, their mm-hmm. Venn diagram of, it might be a small overlap, but it's the biggest in their lives. Yeah. It's the thing that is most prevalent. Yeah. And that's powerful. I love, I mean, this was a really inspiring film for me, honestly, the more I thought about it, the more I chewed on it. And I just really love that concept of finding even more contemporary versions of that. Yeah. You know, it, it was interesting because I feel like this story, like the, the heart of the story has been told before. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's, it's uh, in during the war and there's a lot of racism going on at home and, you know, uh, during in the fighting and, but you have this, uh, this coming together, based on the fact that you're just trying to survive um, and that changes hearts or it changes your view or something that, that I feel like that story has been told before. So, but it just goes to show you that just because it's told before doesn't mean it needs to, it shouldn't be told again. Absolutely. I mean, you think of way. something like, uh, remember the Titans, right. And it's not necessarily the same era, but I mean, not far away right? and still dealing heavily with the same concepts and you're, you're absolutely right. Just because it's been done before doesn't mean it can't be done again with fresh light. Yeah. And one of the things I loved about Mudbound was in that sequence leading up to it, they show you his life in Germany. Mm, yeah. Right. right, and you, right. you see how equal he is. Yeah. And he's, and this is the, the great irony of World War II is we go to war with Germany and we kind of walk away, you know, spitting at their racism and at their intolerance and then come home and it's nothing but racism, nothing but racism and intolerance. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's painful. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was really good twist in there to have him fall in love with that, with her, just to go back to Europe. Like that's where his happiness is. That's where e- more equality is. And, and, it, it was, it was just a, a a different spin on it. Um, but I I loved that they weren't afraid to to go there to show the fault of America in that time. But to kind of tripping over my words here, I feel like it's because I agree with it so much, and I and and to tell it from the point of view of of both an African American and a Caucasian coming home from essentially the same experience. They both had had friends die, right? So that's the interconnection that you're talking about. But it, when, whenever they meet on the street, it, he already knew he already knew like, he, so he knew he had been to war and he had already made the decision. I'm, this is, this is my equal before he even helped him up, you know, uh, or got helped up you know, put his hand out there and offered him a ride. He had made the decision that this, this guy is an equal. Um, and they shot that sequence beautifully because you immediately get the tension involved with it. Oh yeah. By how everyone, cause that's a very public 
square, you know, even though it's just the side of the road, yeah. you know, you're outside of a store, you have people hanging out on the porch front and just people, passersby, and you can see everyone's reaction to this black man helping up a white man, dusting his hat off for him, handing it back. And is this white man going to take it? Is he going to receive it? Not only is he going to take it, but he's going to give him a ride. Yeah. We met, I talked to you about this earlier, but throughout the, throughout films like this, whenever I'm watching them, there's always, and I'm sure you have it too. And I don't know if it's because I'm white or not. Um, but I always have this major tension mm-hmm. that just is inherent in me watching a film like this. I, I'm, I'm wondering what each character, how they're going to react, react, you know, like how are they going to treat each other? In other types of movies, I never think like that. You know, I just go in there and I watch it. And if people beat each other up, it's just like, that's part of the movie, right? right? But a movie like this, that's like, it's basically letting you see truth. Like what really actually happened. I get, even if it's, you know, a story made up, I just get this, this inherent, like, like bubbling up in my stomach, just waiting, like, okay, how is this character going to treat this guy? You know, how's this guy going to, how is this African-American guy going to react? You know, and I, uh, there were some really, some moments that I just felt like it's a gift. Like the movie gave me a gift. That, that was a moment where, um, Jamie, well, no, well, when Ronzel helped him up, Mm -hmm. that moment was a a little gift for me and how, uh, he reacted, Right and just treating him like an equal and giving him a ride. That was a total gift to me. Right. And then showing up, there were other little gifts that of just humanity where, where some, Oh, Oh, like a white character would, there'd be just a hint of treating, treating a black character like as equal. And then, you know, they'd flip and, and, you know, he'd say, no, you're going to rent the mule from me. I'm not going to let you use the mule. Um, but it kind of gave me those, which kept me going. Cause usually I'm exhausted through movies like this. Yeah. I'm by the end of it. I'm like, God, just please be over. So I, I, I don't have to see this cause it just makes me, you know, it makes me exhausted. And I, I did feel that way, you know, for sure. But it, it just kept me going throughout the whole time, even when it was slower in the beginning and working its way through getting to the, the, the point. Yeah. That was one of the things that at the first, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes I was dragging. I was like, Oh God, I don't know if I'm going to like this movie. I'm not liking it right now. It's just, mm-hmm. it's really taking its time. It's very, there's a lot happening. It kind of borders on being overwrought with just too much, too many angles, too many stories. I mean, I think ultimately it, it works out because I understand they're trying to set up so much, but part of me wishes they could have found a way to, to knock out, you know, 20, 30 minutes worth maybe overall, but maybe, you know, cutting the first 30, 40 minutes down in half, because I think the, and obviously the the heart of this movie is really the relationship between those two, those two guys. So Mm. I think that would have been great. I mean, I understand that they felt you really need the context for their lives what they're walking into whenever they do get back. And so, I mean, ultimately I guess you can't fault it, but I, I my hardest storytelling is, you know, be a little bit more efficient get to the, and get yeah, to the point, get to it a little bit faster. And there's also just so much voiceover that I didn't know how to take it. 
the I'm, I assume the book is probably written in a lot of first person. Uh, Game of Thrones is written in a lot of first person too, but they still manage to navigate those those waters uh, through you know the writing and strong acting, which this has some amazing performances yeah. uh, for sure. But yeah, I, I just would have liked to seen a little bit tighter uh, beginning and maybe a little less voiceover. I think it's still effective in certain points because there is the, our silent, you know, lives that, that we have that we, especially in that era, I cannot even imagine, you know, the, the thoughts, there's one section where Mary J. Blige is talking about, uh, the way she sees this, this white baby. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I know that, you know, effectively my life is intertwined right now with this white baby. If something happens to this baby, yeah. Something happens to me. Do you, do you think though that it, it, what they're trying to get across with that slowness in the beginning was that's the era. It's slow. Like life is, life is slow. You work, you eat, you sleep. That's it. You don't, you know, you don't have the phones, you don't have the movies, you don't have all of the stuff that we have today. So really just trying to set that stage. I think that, no, I think you're right. I think that's also really reflected in the, the camera work. You can see that you know there's there's not all these sweeping shots. There's no, yeah. almost there's very little dolly work even. Yeah. The dolly work that's there is usually very very calm. Mm. It's very slow. There's just these slow, tiny, gradual push-ins. Then you're back to being handheld. These it's a lot of composed images. It's almost like you're looking at uh, uh, photographs. And so I definitely get that sense of we are we're observers. To that end, I was also frustrated that. It was digital, I guess. Uh, so this was shot by me, one of my favorite cinematographers, uh, Rachel Morrison, who I think the world of ever since Fruitvale Station, I've just been crazy about her. I mm-hmm. think I think she's amazing. She shot dope, and uh, she's shooting the new Black Panther that's coming up. She works a lot with uh, Ryan Coogler, um, even though I don't think she was available for for Creed Panther Coogler, just <laughs> all the cats, all the cats. <laughs> and I think she's amazing. And I was kind of surprised she didn't shoot on film. I did find an article where she talks about that, where they just didn't quite have the budget. It would have ended up, ended up costing two more days in shooting. Yeah. And they already had such oh, a man of time like schedule. this, those shots on film. God, it makes it, it to me, it really makes a difference. I was off put when you're looking in, in the past, uh, there's a there's a little bit more help if you're shooting it on something like film. Uh, it just feels more appropriate with the era. The textures are a little bit softer. They're not as exact. And honestly, I was really surprised when I found out they shot this on uh, the Alexa Mini uh, and these really old Panavision anamorphics because the uh, the image is so sharp. My my impression, and I haven't ever had the budget to do to do this, but my impression has always been that if you're going to shoot on a nice new camera that is just super, you know, 4K, 6K, all the craziness, then shoot on these older lenses that have these that you know because they've been around for 50 years. Yeah, you know they've they've degraded a little bit. They yeah they have all these little imperfections that add a little bit more organic texture to the image itself. And so I was really surprised that. That's exactly what they did here. Uh, My my impression looking at it whenever I was watching, I was like, man, this looks like it was maybe shot on red with, you know, some brand new cooks or, you know, hawk light anamorphics or something like that. But no, they she did exactly that. And it was still just so sharp and crisp that 
I didn't feel like I was watching something that took place, you know, 70, 80, 90 years ago, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, my math is 70 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. <laughs> but, you know, it felt like something, I felt like I was a little bit more on set than I was, you know, in, in the, in the past. Yeah. Um, and so I wish they could have, you know, sprung for however much more I can't imagine it. I mean, if it was two days of production, you know, that's maybe a hundred grand and, and it's, it's, sound, it sounds like though what you're saying that, that it's still, a, it's, it's impressive. It's like what you would have done with that limitation in your budget. Yeah. Yeah. I was really surprised cause that's exactly what I would have done. Yeah. Um, but she God, I mean, it's still beautiful because, and I think a lot of cinematographers forget this, that the point isn't to show off your skills. The point is to support the story. Mm. What is the story about? What are the themes? What is, what's your era? You know, what do you, what do you, what's the topic and how can I represent this as appropriately as possible to pull people into the story and to help them uh, empathize and, and see these characters and, yeah. and understand their, their thoughts and, and to feel everything appropriately. And she clearly did that because like you just said, you know, a minute ago, it's, it, you feel it in the, in the film, the way the minimalism, uh, minimalism that is throughout the film. Yeah. Um, it's not, and she carried that through with a lot of practical lighting, you know, so that usually is going to mean a lot of harder shadows at night and a lot of softer shadows. Night shots, dude. Just gorgeous. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it was noticeable. Like I don't always notice, you know, stuff like that, but I, I was watching thinking, man, that's, that's just a gorgeous moment. You know, I, yeah, I was beside myself because whenever you start having these, these reds or these oranges, um, kind of creeping in through the, you know, from the, uh, the porch lighting Yeah, and it's just, God, I was really beside myself the way she was mixing some of these colors um, and still getting, you know, so much emotion out of it. Yeah, I was just, I couldn't believe it. And the, the, the trick with that, though, is whenever you start really relying heavily on practical lighting, you start getting these hard shadows. Um, but it just fit right in with the, with the drama of the movie. It really yeah. felt like everything really was planned out because so many other filmmakers start to say, instead of all those things that we just said, instead of what's the story, how can I support it with my choice in uh, camera, the lenses, the lighting package, um, camera movements, they start to say, what's the coolest thing we can do? Mm-hmm. What's the coolest shot we can do? And then that ends up costing you. Maybe if you want to do this outrageous one Maybe that costs you a, a full day of production and rehearsals in order but to get But does that this. really support the story? Does it? Right. And even worse, if you don't pull it off. Oh yeah, right. You know, yeah. Now you're you're stuck with the shot <laughs> that you have a hard time cutting around. So can we talk for a second about the performances mm-hmm. really fast? Uh Rob Morgan. Oh my god. <laughs> Hat. Just I crushed it. It, it, I, I, so before you even really see or see him on camera a lot, I mean, you see him on camera before this, but he starts doing this VO, uh, and it's incredible. His voice is like butter. It's, it's, it's incredible. And the things he's saying, the, the, like his lines and the delivery with the, the Southern accent, it's just right. It's like, you have to really listen to it because 
it's it's pretty heavy but if you you have to listen close but if you listen close and you get you get every word and it's man it, it's incredible he and, was amazing I, we both walked away saying my god that guy yeah that guy <laughs> needs to be in way more movies way more stuff yeah because yeah he was enthralling like i just every time he was on screen i mm-hmm. could not tear my eyes away he was absolutely incredible and the only thing i other thing i i know him from what and i had to look it up which is a great sign anytime you have to i have to imdb someone it means that they're they're doing their work they're not just being themselves yeah Yeah. i never have to look up will smith right because he always brings a lot of will smith to his roles but the only other film i recognized uh rob morgan from after checking his credits was stranger things (laughs) he plays this cop which is a completely different character (laughs) and he's amazing there too i mean he's really good he's minimal but uh seeing him really get a chance to breathe and to to put his chops to work man yeah it was it was like i'd seen him before yeah absolutely like yeah I was like, yeah, I was had that same feeling. I was like, man, this guy's been everywhere, hasn't he? And nope, he was wow. just like, I felt like I've seen him a thousand times. And Jason Clark was incredible in this. <sighs> just it, he, so he was. The more I think about it, his role was very difficult to play because he had this balance of asshole, racist, and like still felt not right about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Every time he was that way, you could tell there was an air of, I know this isn't right. You know, only in his face, like little things in his face, like, or, or how he stood or how he would say something and then walk away. Uh, it, it was a perfect example of riding a fine line and acting where you, you're not one thing and you're not the other. You're right in the middle. Um, just by, how you're acting and not what you're saying. Yeah. It was really, really, really well done. God. And I mean, as always, Carrie Mulligan, I I mean, ever since uh, an education, I've just been on her fan bus. Like she's, she's always incredible. So it's almost uh, pointless to even talk about her. (laughs) You know what you're going to get out of her and it's always going to be amazing. But I was also really Garrett Hudlin for me. This is probably the first time where I really sat up and noticed Garrett Hudlin. Oh man. Good God, because he does similar to uh, Jason Clark. Like he rides that fine line of is he being a jerk? Yeah, yeah. But when in when in actuality, he's the most equal person other than maybe. uh, No, not even. He's the most equal uh, loving person maybe in the film uh, because he's going to treat him, uh, Ronzel. Jamie's going to treat Ronzel the exact same way Jamie treats his brother. Yeah. And anybody in high society. Right. You know, he's just, he's not being a prick. He just kind of has the, the heart of a prick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's just his demeanor. Right. Right. Well, you know, and in, in his character's defense, you know, you come back from what he'd been through mm-hmm. and, and you're an alcoholic. You're not sleeping. You're having nightmares. You're going to be kind of that way, I would assume. Yeah. But I think it's just, Maybe it's the highest praise to treat someone as an honest equal because right. it can be really easy to hand them a crutch. Yeah. Yeah. And by overly empathizing and just say, you know what, I'm going to kind of condescend to you. And he never does that. 
He mm-hmm. never does that. I mean, sometimes to his detriment, right? When he's he pretends to chase him down, Ronzel down with the truck. Like that scared the ever living daylights out of Ronzel. That's not funny. Like right, that's yeah. a real life uh, yeah. issue for him. And if that if he had been white, I'm sure he still would have done it because it's just a funny thing to do. Yeah. But he doesn't have that empathy to realize, oh, you know what? This is like wildly screwed up. Yeah. So, so that brings it's military me, humor that I brought home. Yeah. So that, that kind of brings me back to the, the question. So your intersectionality thing that you brought up earlier, their intersectionality is, is the war it's and the war. fighting yeah. the war. Mm-hmm. So, so this character could have, um, could have easily, they could have easily made this character, want to be Ronzel's friend just because he's black. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I made a promise when I saw, when I saw that, that it was a black fighter pilot that helped me. Uh, I wanted to, you know, change my ways. So he sought out a black guy to, to be friends with, right. Just because he's black. Right. Yeah. But they, I didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like, like, no, you know, yeah, the guy helped him up. And so he was, he offered him a ride. It was Um, on both parts. It was on both parts, but then he found, you know, but, but the real thing, the real connection was the war. I don't think if it was just any black guy that helped him up, that that might've happened. I feel, feel like it was, he knew he'd come home from war. They had that connection. And so he was going to befriend him. Yeah. And I mean, to your point that set up by allowing Ronzel to be the initiator. Yeah. Made all oh, the yeah. difference in the world. Yeah, for sure. Because that would have undercut everything, right? Yeah. If, if suddenly right. Jamie is the one outreaching and then you're putting already Ronzel at a subordinate position. Yeah. Man, I didn't even think of that is huge. That's, that's the biggest part of the movie for me then. Yeah. That moment. That's such a strong establishment of their characters and, yeah. and their relationship because, and not just because, you know, you want to say that they're Eagles, but because to do otherwise would have been detrimental. Yeah. It would have been the standard. The it would yeah. have been the standard, the, the black guys on the ground. Mm-hmm. And now this white guy is going to come help him up and save him. Like, no, yeah. they're yeah. helping like, each so other. You flip that on its head. Yeah. yeah. And it changes everything. The way that you look at their relationship from that point on, mm-hmm. you know, and Oh man, can we talk about the scene? That was the, uh, and how about okay okay before we let's let's not even go there let's not even go there let's just let people that watch this movie go there themselves All okay right. we don't need to go there yeah. but but in the context let's talk about Jonathan Banks okay i noticed a couple of things one every moment he's in this film i hate him which means he's a great actor. Great actor. <laughs> <laughs> right? I hate his guts the entire time. Um which is which is a testament to him because you love him in Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Every moment he's in a yep. shot in Breaking Bad, you just love him. Uh but in this movie, there's never a moment where I'm like, Yeah, I I, I can I don't completely dis dis you know, hate this guy. No, I hate him the whole time. But they sparingly use him. Or they use him sparingly. Like you see him kind of in the beginning. You see him a little bit here or there throughout the film in the you know, in the middle. He disappears for a long time. Mm. There's like thirty or forty five minutes almost, thirty or forty minutes maybe, 
maybe I'm getting my timelines wrong, but there's a good, huge gap there where you don't see him at all, uh-uh. where they're shooting Carrie Mulligan in, in the house mm-hmm. with the kids. You don't see him in any of those shots. They're shooting, you know, out in the field or they, they're shooting um, Henry working in the barn or whatever. And we don't see Pappy anywhere. And then all of a sudden he comes up at the end to be a jerk again and to, to be the, the antagonist or whatever. So that might've been partially budgetary. Maybe. maybe he's, he's, he's one of the biggest a listers. I think in this, maybe not the biggest, but one of the biggest, or maybe it could have been his schedule only allowed him certain days to shoot certain number of days to shoot. And so they had to work around that. I'm curious because usually a, a major antagonist like that, they're not going to, you know, be cut out of the film for a good chunk like that. That's true. And it's such a strong signal that it's his son that kills him. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, and I mean, on a more metaphoric level, that's, that's a signal to us as, you know, Americans dealing with the, with the issue of race that it's, it's, it's incumbent on the people who see it, who recognize it. Yeah. And it's, you, it's not enough to just befriend and be, have equals. Mm-hmm. You, it's, it's on us to also confront the people in our own ranks, in our own you know, community that's, that we know through our own intersectionality yeah. um, to deal with it. Yeah. It, it's really unfair. And I mean, this could turn into a wildly large conversation, but it's unfair even though there's still... I think some unfortunate uh, weight for black people to still push and to create these avenues, you know, for their own, uh, not, not just survival, which, cause let's face it, there's that too, but their own equality to keep wrestling that yeah. bear and it's, but they can't do it alone. Yeah, no. And so seeing Jamie you need more Jamie's out there. Killing his father. Like I'm not necessarily killing, killing your fathers. Right? Don't don't listen to that. <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah, metaphorically, yeah. 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 I, that's that's really strong. That's a really strong message. Um, because what's more important, you know? Is is blood more important or is truth, justice, uh equality? Truth for, and justice, I can humanity. tell you that yeah. right now as an adopted man. Truth and justice matter way more than blood. 100%. Amen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Strong. No, I mean, you know, like I'm not blood related to my parents, but they are my parents. Yeah. No one could convince me otherwise or my sister, but she's my sister. And, and I've always felt like that, you know, and that's why my friends, you like are my family and always will be. It is a, and I, I know you feel the same way, which is our interconnectionality. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like, but so when he does that, it, it, it really hits home and it makes you think every generation that, that, that passes on is a little, a little bit of this era goes away. Right. And, and we start, you know, like, like sifting through, sifting through all of, all of that. And eventually we'll end up on the other side where, what is it in, in Bullworth? They said, he, he says just everybody just keeps screwing until we're all the same color. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, eventually the, the idea is to get there. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, that's a, it's, 
it's pretty prevalent when he does that, that. That's what they're conveying. I feel like awesome. I think it's time to discuss some of the production and the role of a producer with our guest host. So oh let's, yeah. Let's give him a, sh- let's, a shout here. Let's give him a shout. All right. So today we're lucky enough to have Carl Effenson on the podcast, co-producer of the multi-nominated film Mudbound, which is excellent and a must-see for anyone who hasn't caught it yet. Carl, thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate it, man. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Uh, I mean, we have we had to pare down our questions yeah. to uh, to just a few because we, we have so many. Yeah, so if you could just briefly explain, if you even can, what is a producer? Well, the best way that I describe it is like with a sports analogy. So you have your owner, who's your investor. You have your general manager, who's your producer. Director, who's like your head coach. You have your actors who are the players, and you have a whole support staff around, you know, from an operational standpoint. So I like to think that, you know, my role as a producer is really, um, you know, one of a general manager and, you know, one that, you know, finds the material, puts together, you know, the team, the director, the actors, you know, and, and all in combination with the director who's, who's really guiding the ship. So basically everything behind the scenes to make everything run smoothly. You're the, you're the grease in the, in the gears. Yeah, it probably sounds much more glamorous. Than <laughs> <it is. laughs> I don't know about that. So, uh, so how did you get into production? And then um, if you could tell a little bit of your backstory and then how you personally got involved with uh, the Mudbound Project. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So I, I didn't even study film um, in college. I went to the University of Arizona and studied communications and regional development. And, uh, you know, when I graduated, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I've always had a, pa- you know, a passion for film. My mom is an independent filmmaker. And so when I graduated, um, you know, fortunately, uh, my mom had a company out in Los Angeles, started working for her. And we made a film in Traverse City, Michigan, which was really like my film school. And I really got to see everything from like development uh, to distribution. And so fast forward a couple of years later, you know, I started uh, my own company, Art Image Entertainment, with uh, Kyle Tequila. And we made a zombie rom-com with Joe Dante, and that starred Anton Yelkin, uh, Ashley Green from Twilight and Alexander Daddario, who uh, was in True Detective and Baywatch and is becoming a really big star. And uh, the book came our way as we were making Bearing the X, and it was actually my mom who optioned the, optioned the book and put together the financing for the adaptation. And it was all brought to us by a writer named Virgil Williams, who, um, you know, really had a strong vision for the project. And we sat down with him and, you know, really heard him out and what he wanted to do with it. And, you know, just uh, reading the novel, it's all, it was all there. And so to hear Virgil's passion for it and his vision, you know, it was something that we really wanted to support. So it took us about a year to really get to, you know, where we were happy with with the script and you know in the meantime we made another movie with Barry and the X the zombie rom-com um, that I just explained told you guys about and uh, you know from there it all just kind of took off you know we were fortunate enough to work with a producer named Cassian Elways on Barry and the X who had um, you know is a very prolific producer he put, he's put together 
um, you know, many projects, including like the Dallas Buyers Club and the Butler. And we we had a really positive experience with with Cassian and wanted to work with him again. And so we brought him the screenplay and you know just said that you know this is something that we think is really undeniable and and worthy. And you know he read it within a day. And then from there, you know, we went to Dee Reese, who read the screenplay and got back to us quickly. And then all the partners really came along, um, you know, not shortly after Dee's attachment. So what would you say was like the biggest turning point in that whole process? Like, you know, the thing that really set all the the gears in motion, was there one thing or was it just the, the series of things that you just described? I mean, it, it was a series of things. Like, you know, it's all, they're all little minor miracles, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first miracle is getting Cassian involved. Well, the first miracle is Virgil bringing us yeah, this right. amazing book that, you know, we just fell, fell in love with. And by the way, this is all over a period of six years. I mean, this was, this was a really long journey wow. to, from book to from book to screen, but you know, the first miracle is being given the opportunity to work on such incredible material. And then, you know, the other, you know, the second one was when, uh, you know, Cassian came on, on board. Then we, then, you know, the next one was D and then we were really fortunate to have really incredible, uh, producing partners on, on the film. Uh, you know, Charles King, who started his company macro, this was their first film that they finan- that they fully financed and uh, were a part of, and uh, you know they, they've done uh, Fences and the new uh, Denzel Washington movie uh, Roman J Esquire, and then you know the other miracle was our was our financier Armory Films Chris Lamol and Tim Zajaros, and you know these uh, financiers and producers, you know they really believed in D and in the project and. You know, supported D with her casting decisions of uh, you know putting together this ensemble, and uh, you know if you if you look at how an independent film is put together, this went up, this went against everything that you know financiers look for, and it was really just um, you know a passion play and you know a group of people that really believed in something and. When you have that many people screaming, this is amazing, this is amazing, then <laughs> enough people maybe take notice of it that can make it happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, this, it, it all comes down to the screenplay and having a visionary director and Dee Reese. Um, you know, that that was really the, uh, the the launching point. And the casting, wow. Yeah, and and I mean, it's obviously paid off. You have four Academy Award nominations between... Best Original Song for Mighty River, Best Supporting Actress for Mary J. Blige, obviously the writing that you're talking about, got a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay for D. Reese and Virgil Williams. But personally, my favorite of all the nominations is the last one, which is Rachel Morrison becoming the first woman nominated for Best Cinematography. Um, I've been following her work since Fruitvale Station, and I know she's a big proponent of shooting on film. And so can you touch on the decision to shoot digital instead of film? Well, it's kind of like, you know, the, it's a process that we go, to, go through on each and every film. And, you know, obviously, I think that if, uh, you know, if we had our way and economics were a part of the discussion, you know, we would have shot film. But we, we tested uh, Super 16, 35 millimeter, and uh, on the Alexa, and I mean, you know, obviously there's, you know, a magic within 35 that, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to 
to uh, replicate. But you know, the the digital look that we were going for, you know, was was a close enough approximation to analog. And, you know, it was basically the difference of either two shooting day, like, you know, we, we presented the filmmakers with, you know, the director and with Rachel with, you know, a decision like, okay, we'll shoot film, but, you know, we have to lose two days in order to, to pay for it. And so we already had a really lean schedule. We shot over 27 days in Louisiana and then two days in Budapest for all the World War II sequences with uh, Ronsol and Riesel. And then we did one VFX stage during post where we had Garrett uh, in an actual B-25 bomber in a, uh, a World War II museum in upstate New York. So all in all, we had 30 days to shoot, you know, basically wow. a 120-page screenplay. And, you know, losing, losing those two days would have just been really critical to our schedule. And, uh, you know, fortunately... Rachel was able to come up with a really um, interesting way to shoot the film, which is we shot on the Alexa minis, but she was able to retrofit old, I think it was like either 1960s or 1970s uh, Panavision glass Mm -hmm. uh, onto this state-of-the-art camera. And that really gave a texture and a softness to the image that... um, you know, I think really helped make her work stand out. But she she really has an incredible eye for framing and and you know uh, painting light. You know, the the film to me is you know has a very painterly quality to it, and uh, you know it, it's all has to do with you know the influences um, that Rachel and Dee um, touched upon when they were discussing the cinematography. Yeah, and I mean, from her standpoint, I think. Or from my standpoint, watching her work, it feels very much like you know you're you're watching portraits. You know the stillness of a lot of the frames. It still maintains a little bit of a handheld, but there's just not as much movement to kind of give you the sense that these are portraits of people. Uh, you know, symbolically and in almost a more literal sense. Obviously, she's well earned the nomination. So. Uh, no disagreement here. Yeah, those, those night well, her, shots. Her work amazing. is amazing, and you know, really, the locations really informed the way that we had to shoot too. Because you know, we shot in actual sharecropper cabins, um, you know, which yeah. were very tight wow. quarters. There was very little um, light sources to to punch in, and so you know, you know, Rachel really made the best of it. And um, you know, if if I could, I'd have her on on every single one of our films. I mean, yeah. you know. Not just uh, you know incredible uh, cinematographer, but you know a wonderful person as well. Awesome. What what would you say is so you already touched on you know the the short time that you had to to film this this film. Would you say that that was the biggest challenge, or were there other challenges on the set? It's a very heated script as well. I mean. D- was well, it was a really safe, it was a really safe environment for for the actors and uh, you know they all really bonded um, you know on set and you know Jonathan Banks is who plays Pappy is yeah. just the nicest person I've ever met I mean him and Jason would would finish a scene and you know they would they would just hug it out I mean they you know they grew very close and you know, mutual respect for, for one another and, you know, for their craft. But, uh, you know, as far as, like, the biggest challenges, not only were we looking at a very streamlined uh, shooting schedule, 
but you know, shooting in Louisiana on a uh, sugarcane farm presented its own own set of challenges. I mean, for one, we had extreme heat and humidity during the day, and then at night the mosquitoes would come out. Uh, but we also lost a lot of time because you know there would be tornado warnings, and if it if there was any lightning out, then we would have to you know shut down until that cleared. So. You know, if you look at it, I mean, from the time, you know, we, we literally shut down for half of a day due to a tornado warning. And, uh, you know, if you look at the time that D had to actually shoot the film, it was, it was more like 25 days. Yeah. So on that point, you talk about, you know, having a very friendly set environment. What what was the set atmosphere like when dealing with such a heavy topic? Were there days where things got a little bit quieter than others or was it always... Uh, you cut and people I think are just. That there was always a respect for the craft each and every day, and knowing that we were there um, to do something that was important to everybody that was on set. Um, you know, no one re- no one did this for the money, and uh, you know, our, our set atmosphere too. You know, a lot of it had to do with just making sure that Dee had everything that she needed, and uh, you know, it was kind of uh, you know get out of the way and make sure that. Uh, you know, production has everything, everything that they needed. Awesome. So you said that, you know, you started producing smaller, smaller budget things. Would you, would you consider this a larger budget film? I know you've done a lot of other stuff too, but um, this has definitely had like, obviously the most attention and, and so many nominations and everything. And it's just so successful. But is there anything that you, I'm sure you learned something new on every set, but what in particular could you share that you might've learned through the shooting of this film, through the, the producing of this film? Hmm. That's, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that it's, you know, really just putting your faith and, you know, the people that you hire and, you know, giving them the room, um, to do their job and, uh, you know, to make sure that they have everything that they need. I mean, you know, that was my, really my biggest, my biggest lesson is, is that when you get, a visionary filmmaker like a D. Reese, um, you know, to just make sure that you're not screwing it up, you know, make sure that she has everything that she needs in order to make, you know, in order to fulfill her vision. And, uh, you know, fortunately, D. told us everything that she needed and, you know, the communication was there. And, uh, you know, and that that's not to say that there were no sacrifices made because, I mean, this easily... I mean, we, we, we had this budgeted out, and this easily could have been a $35 million movie, but this was, you know, an $11.5 million dollar movie, and every penny is up on screen. That's waste not, want not, right? Yeah. Man, that's amazing. <laughs> Gosh. And, and, and can I just say, Mary J. Blige, what? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't even know that was her. I, well, I was watching the film. My wife and I were wa- watching the film and Wes. We were all through watching the film. And the whole time, I, did, I didn't recognize her. I didn't know because I went into the, whole, the film not knowing anything, not knowing who was in it or any, anything like that. And then afterwards, Wes said something about Mary J's, or I think it was you. You said mm-hmm. something about her performance. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> Oh my gosh, that was her. Oh yes, it was. And then, and then Jenny said the same thing just the other day, actually. She didn't know for like a week and just incredible. The casting was fantastic. Uh, I, I, I feel like watching it, I could see your work. 
in some ways as a producer. The, I did notice there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of rain in it. And so you brought up the fact that, you know, there was, there were, you know, tornado warnings and stuff and you, it affected shooting, but capitalizing on those moments that you could. And, you know, it did look like there was, there was probably a lot of, a lot of headaches in certain ways or whatever, but it, it came across so well. Well, thank you. I mean, a lot of the rain that you see, um, was really uh, scripted rain. So those were, those were rain towers that we had on set that gave us that rain. And then, you know, a lot of the time when it did rain, you know, we, we didn't need it. So we, we would have to wait. Oh. So, you know, production, you know, did have a lot of challenges and, you know, kind of rolling with the weather was one of them. But, you know, back to Mary J. Blige, uh, you know, I agree with you guys completely. I mean, you know, when she got to set, you know, we didn't even rec- we didn't even recognize her. I mean, you know, there's, you know, Mary J. Blige, the music superstar, and then you know, there's Mary 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 J. Blige, the person. You know, which you know, fortunately, we've really gotten to know uh, over the past couple of years. And you know, there's this quiet strength and resolve to her. And you know, I think, you know, getting rid of the persona, the wit, you know, the the wig, the nails, the makeup, the lashes. I mean, you know, the whole nine yards and, you know, really surrendering to the role helped her as an actress, you know, really um, submerse herself, immerse herself into into the role. And, uh, you know, it was a really brave thing for her to do because, you know, she's not a classically trained actress. And this is kind of like the next step in the evolution of her career. And, uh, you know, there was... Uh, a lot of surrender and uh, trust uh, with D. Well, she killed it to get her to that point. She's but, got a, a uh, whole nother. Yeah, I'm so happy role. that she's getting all the recognition. I mean, she, you know, talk about making history. She's the first uh, first actor or actress to ever be nominated for um, a best supporting actress and original song in the same year. And it, you know, it's just one part of the of the nominations and the history that this movie has made with, you know, not only Rachel becoming the first female cinematographer to ever be nominated for an Academy Award, but also for Dee um, as, as a woman to be nominated, uh, you know, to be the first female to ever be nominated for an adapted screenplay and only the second female to ever be, nominated in any writing categories. I mean, you know, you really look at at this industry and, you know, it's very male dominated, but, you know, there is, there is a, you know, a swell of support of, you know, uh, supporting female filmmakers. And, you know, on this, you know, Dee was emphatic that, you know, she wanted to hire as many, as many female heads of departments as possible. And it's not because they're female, but, you know, because the work spoke for itself. So, you know, and not only did we have female producers, but we had, you know, uh, a female cinematographer, our head, our makeup department head, Angie Wells, uh, Pud Cusack was our our sound recordist, and uh, you know it was a movie that you know really reflect the filmmaking process really reflected the world that that we live in, and you know wasn't a male dominated set. That's that's so it's such a juxtaposition from yeah. you know what like the age of that the movie was set and all of the the segregation that was going on then to how it was made. Uh, you know, all of these these females coming together to make this the, in, in a, a, a much more modern era 
that I hope continues, you know, from here on out, man. Thank you so much, Carl. We, we really appreciate your time joining us and, and the insights into making this, this movie. If you guys haven't checked it out, please go check out Mudbound. Uh, we really think that you'll like it. And here's to, uh, everybody winning. Yeah. Here's to you winning all of those nominations. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for have, having me. And, you know, thank you again. Uh, you know, it's uh, really nice to, you know, talk with you guys and about the movie and, you know, continue to spread awareness about it. So, I really appreciate that. No problem, man. Good luck in the future and, uh, and have a good one. Okay. Thanks guys. Bye, Bye. Carl. Okay. So we're actually recording this out of sync. Um, and I'm assuming that the interview that we're actually going to do tomorrow was really good. So thank you so much, (laughs) Carl, for coming on. Great job. (laughs) It was really amazing talking to you. I learned so much about myself as a human being, as a man, uh, as, as a father, uh, you're one of my favorite people in the world. Yes. I'm, and I'm, I'm sure you're a good person too. Yeah. And I didn't know that interesting tidbit about that thing you said. Oh man, I couldn't believe it. Incredible. It was, it was amazing. I learned so much and, uh, no, in, in all seriousness to Carl, thank you for being on with us and taking the time. He actually came to the studio super to chat cool. with us because yeah. we tried to do this over the phone and, and for some reason it wasn't working, but so thank you for taking that time. We know you're a busy, man. We Huge. appreciate it. And so I'll, I'll touch on one more technical thing that, uh, this is where Wes is probably being super, super nitpicky. Oh. Um, but it just grated on me throughout the film. <laughs> uh, there was vignetting. Oh I, yeah. Right. Uh, that just was driving me crazy. Um, so vignetting happens, uh, whenever, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was unintentional. Um, but it happens whenever your lens is too small for the sensor. And so these Alexas, uh, have, you know, they're, I, I assume they're full full? frame. Um, but the, I'm not sure if the mini is, they shot this on an Alexa mini. Um, and I'm not sure if that is a full frame as well, but regardless, the, the lens is, the wide angle lens sometimes doesn't quite cover the entire sensor, which means that the the sensor is picking up the, the edges of the lens itself and which results in uh, like this very light black, black right? vignette yeah. around your frame and you can see it. And I, I don't think it's intentional because it's being intercut with these other lenses and they're not adding vignetting to in the same scene in the same scene. Oh yeah. And so I kept seeing that. I was like, damn it. Every time I got it, <laughs> like, damn it. <laughs> uh, but that's probably Turn that shit off. Man. I know. I know. Just watch some movie. <laughs> Golly. But I still think it's, uh, it, it says a lot about, you know, we have a very strong decision that we're making here. We need to shoot on this lens. Maybe it's, the ability to add all a little bit of more dynamicness to it. Whenever you're shooting wide, you have an ability to not only capture more of what's in a room uh, or architecture, because that can be really tough to walk into a smaller room and to get everything into frame that you want, especially when you're shooting on a location on a set that you've built, you can fly out a wall. And that just means that you this is all construction that has screws that you can unscrew and remove a wall so that 
now I can actually back up where and shoot through the wall mm-hmm. instead of you yeah, know regular house room, right? right you know right. you can't move that wall out of the way right um, and so now you need these wider angle lenses maybe to to get the shot that you want but if it's too wide then it starts warping the yeah you yeah, start getting everything. these uh, the these lighting issues that I mean they look like lighting issues but it's just a, a physical lens property that's happening so why do you think that like you know, obviously she knew, okay, there's going to be vignetting on this mm-hmm. because we're using yeah. this, this lens or whatever. Why didn't they just add vignetting in post on the other ones? Uh, the other shots that didn't. It's because no one is there. Only the film community. And even then, oh, okay. Yeah. Even in the film community, only the people who work in the camera department <laughs> oh, okay. are going to spot it. Spot it. Right, yeah, yeah. There's probably a lot of directors that won't even notice it. Um, I mean, I didn't notice it. So <laughs> I it, noticed the vignetting, but I didn't notice the intercutting in, yeah. in scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that is just, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. in one of our, in one of our films and uh, threads, we have a, a shot with some vignetting that we kept in there for one. It was a short film. Like mm-hmm. no one really cares. It's not like we have to deal with this for two hours and 15 minutes. Right. Um, but it also was just one shot. Like every what other was the shot. Oh, you know, you don't want to tell me, you don't want to tell me, you want me to go watch it again. <laughs> okay. I'll go watch it again. I'm going to spot it. I'm going to spot it. Good luck. Okay. <laughs> is it like, how long is it? Uh, is it like long enough to spot or yeah, is it one of those like really seconds. quick? No, oh, it's a yeah, long shot. It's a pretty long shot. Um, but it's obviously wide. Maybe. Yeah. You it punk. It's wide. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll look for it. And so, yeah, I think you make that decision. For one, no one's going to spot it. Yeah. Uh, but then you also still go with it anyway, because which is that's still a really for a for a DP that's still a very strong decision because that's such a huge effect on your image and they take everything in their image incredibly serious. Yeah. Whenever she was looking at what am I going to shoot on, she did all all the legwork to figure out can we get this thing to shoot on film. Uh, that was a really important decision for her and for an average audience goer, that's not something they'll, they'll pick out, but it's something that's empath, you know, to us. Right, yeah. uh, we feel it even though we don't see it. And they do that with everything a good DP will anyway. Yeah. And so it wasn't a small decision on her part. And I think that just really went hand in hand with, uh, it was more important to convey the, the other things, whether it was just having a little bit more dynamic imi- uh, movement, to the image yeah because whenever you're you're shooting on a wide angle lens and you're going handheld that handheldness isn't quite as strong and so you can get away with walking shots or you can get away with a little bit more camera movement mm-hmm. than you can maybe with a with a longer lens and do you, do you think because too much vignetting makes things look cheap to me make mm-hmm. it's like oh you're trying to add something and it's just taking everything yeah. away. So that's probably another reason why they just didn't go through and add vignetting on yeah. everything. If they had vignetting in a, in a scene. Yeah. Cause the least amount of it, the better. Yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. then if it's there all the time, then you start noticing it rather right. than someone like me would notice it rather than just having it a shot here or a shot there. Maybe. Yeah. I and, don't know. I mean, maybe in, it might just be, you know, me being overactive, but there, Maybe there was actually only a dozen of these shots, um, but because I'm just 
Come on. A ridiculous human. <laughs> uh, I was just, every time I was like, oh God, here it comes again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so really quick before we leave with the quote of the day, what would you give this, uh, what would you give Mudbound out of 10? Out of 10, ooh, I'd probably give it a seven. Um, really? I really enjoyed it. There's some amazing performances. It's beautiful. The lighting is incredible. Um, yeah, but because of the, uh, the sluggishness of it. I, if I could, you know, recut it or get the hour 45 minute version of it, I would probably, you know, give it eight, eight and a half or something like that. But mm-hmm. it drug and it, I would rather spend, I guess, more time with, with those, with those two yeah, in there, yeah. which is the bitter sweetness of the film itself. Right. Um, that's always what you want to aim for, right? Yeah. Leave them wanting oh, more. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at. I don't have a, What'd you think of the ending? What the freaking sledgehammer! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're serious. The I, look on your face was like so serious. I yeah. was, yeah, I was distraught, man. Yeah, <laughs> it's so painful and uh, it's still beautiful. I mean, it still leaves you with something. Yeah, that you're. Not every film does this, and it's, it's a fine line to ride to leave some, so much hope, on the table. Um, whenever you're discussing such a heavy topic because people like Spielberg tend to get raked over the coals, you know, for some of his films analyzing World War II and coming out with this sunny disposition afterwards. Right, yeah. It's like, are you, aren't you are you undercutting the, the, the pain and the loss? Um, but it worked really wonderful here. There's, a, I think, a, some really strong metaphoric work with having his tongue removed. Oh, I was just going to say it, yeah. And having that decision made by his, uh, his brother in arms. Yeah. Um, I think that is, goes back to the point we made about, we need to step up and be their, their mouthpiece, uh, to our other, you know, white community. Well, I, I, I would like to add, I think that this hat quote unquote happy ending is, it's not in the corny version because, because his tongue is removed because yeah. he can't tell his son, he loves him because despite the fact that he gets to be with his son, that he gets to be with that woman that he loves, that he, they choose to end it happily. There's, there's always a missing piece, you know, to him that he cannot, he can't tell his son he loves him. And so it's not just sunshine and rainbows at the end. You know, there is an element of sadness to that, to that overall happiness. Um, And, and I think that, you know, that also is a metaphor for what's go- going on today. You know, are, are we further along in the, in the fight? Absolutely. Do we have a long way to go? Is there a lot of damage that has been done? Oh, every single day still. Absolutely. So, um, I personally feel like I like the movie a little bit better than you. I would have given it an eight or an eight and a half, depending on how I feel that day. Nice. I like the slowness at the beginning, which is surprising for me because yeah, it's kind of reverse because I typically have no yeah, issues. Yeah, you have whatsoever. no issues with that. That's why I'm like, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little surprised um, on both of our fronts, you know, but uh, I, I just feel like for some reason, um, I don't know. This film needed that. It, it, it needed to show the slowness of the era. I don't know. To me, it's just ironic because they take so much time establishing these characters, but also use voiceover. To me. Mm voiceover is the reason to truncate time. To truncate time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could see that. Yeah. And for sure. So in that way it's it's 
struck me as a little bit more television-y mm-hmm. with using that that tool so strongly. Okay. Um, yeah, that's not something you see that often. On, yeah, there's usually on, more silence yeah. in the you know the long larger shots where you're establishing it's evening they're you know they're walking in from the fields etc you know think i can see that yeah um but still i mean a wonderful film like yeah. i would oh, definitely yeah. i'm super glad i watched it and will definitely be recommending it to to people awesome yeah same here um what's your recommendation for the week uh i'm going to recommend uh it's the end of the effing world Oh, nice. <laughs> it just popped up on Netflix one day. I had no idea it was coming. And uh, I just I opened Netflix and I was like, what is this? This looks awesome. I started watching it, got completely hooked. Uh, it's a British um, series of two kids. And that's all I'm going to tell you. And it's one thing. He's a psychopath and it's pretty awesome. That is cool. Go check, go, go check it out. It's on Netflix. I'm going to recommend Fruitvale Station. It's yeah. uh, Ryan Coogler's film, and Rachel Morrison also shot that. I think that was kind of her big stepping off point. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredible film, still uh, dealing with you know the same topic of racial disparity in America and a uh, much more modern version, and it's a true story. And arresting and a must see. I think it's really, it really is a must see. Awesome. Yeah. So next week we are going to be doing fight club. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. That's right. We had the request. Yeah. Let's we had to do re- it. Steven, yeah. my boy, Steve, uh, requested it. So we'll definitely be doing that and really excited to dive into it. Don't forget to review and subscribe to us on iTunes if you want to drop us a note about your thoughts about uh, this episode, go to the com slash mudbound and leave us a note, whether it's, you know, a thumbs up or if you want to weigh in on some of the heavy <laughs> topics that, yeah, we, that we heavy. brought up, you know, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, obviously, don't be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have any, you know, jerk viewers, but, uh, you know, have tact. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. And with that, we'll leave you with a quote of the day. Yeah, let's do it. This one's by Martin Luther King Jr. Human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. I love that. Beautiful. Because it's human progress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even though we're discussing uh, racism and inequality in America, uh, human progress goes beyond that. Whether you're talking about, you know, this topic or you're talking about going to the moon, um, human progress always, always requires a lot of tireless exertion and passionate concern, you know, from dedicated individuals and, you know, maybe doubly, triply so for, for things like inequality, either one way or the other, Yeah, you know, people have to, people it, it, I love that it says neither automatic nor inevitable, meaning it's it's going to go the direction of people's actions. People want to be jerks to each other, then it's going to go one way. And if people want to start looking at each other as equal, it's going to go the other way. You know, it'll sit there in its state yep. for as long as you let it. Yeah. That's yeah. what that, exactly. right? It's like, it's just brutally honest. Yep. 
because it's easy for us in in the present day to look back on history and say, yeah, it was inevitable that we'd get to this point. But then you have to remember, and we've probably talked about this previously, but the kids I grew up around, the black kids that I grew up around were the first generation in their family to be born with equality, with equal mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're still wrestling. That's that's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. The first generation in their family to have equal rights. We're we're close to that. Like we are not far away from what that was. Right. That that's my lifetime. That blows my mind. Because I grew up reading and studying in elementary, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. And to me it's just this bygone era, but it was only fifteen years before my birth. That's nuts. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen photos like old black and white photos of uh, crowds on the on the steps of the Capitol holding of white people holding signs saying whites only and and things like that. And seeing those photos, it just it's un it's unbelievable <laughs> that mm-hmm. that was not that long ago. And the idea of that happening now is just like. Almost unfathomable. I know it does still, Mm. but it's widely unacceptable. Yeah, at least it's codified now. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) It is against. We've made that, but it it took not just the Martin Luther Kings or the Malcolm X's. It took the thousands of people like them that nobody knows their names, white or black, in that fight to get here. And so we just need to keep pushing in that direction or else nothing will get done. So the good MLK junior. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yep. It's so serious in here. <laughs> Someone needs to burp or something to kind of How do we tension. transition to an ending? All right. Well, thank you for joining us. But you just do it. Man. You just, do, you just it. do it like a bandaid. Thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, and I want to thank Carl again. Thank you so much for absolutely for jumping on with us. Uh, we had such a great time and, and, uh, very really kind it. to yeah. donate your time like that. Yeah. Uh, so please go see Mudbound and, uh, write us a review, subscribe, tell your friends about us. Um, and, uh, until next time I'm Todd, I'm Wes and go watch some movies. Yeah.